Podcast Network. You come like half an hour early. I need to talk to you about something. It's really important. Why can't you talk about it in front of me? Uh, because I am my own person, who's not you, with my own boundaries and everything. We actually exist. This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 191 for the week of February 12th, 2018. I am Certain Time of Day, David T. Cole, and I'm here with Prius of Existential Gloom, Sarah D. Bunting. Middle Age! Bad stylist, Tara Ariano. <laughs> I'm a good stylist. And barista kisser, Joe Reed. Ow! Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Extra Hot Great. I believe I said Prius. I meant Prius. You did. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're not going to re-record that because that was our fourth attempt at starting this <laughs> episode. Little side business up top. Just a reminder, there are no minis this week as we work to split the feed. And I don't really want to publish a mini uh, only for it to disappear on you. So we're going to hold off on minis this week. And the other thing I want to mention is I want to thank KF for their... Out of the blue donation to the Extra Hot Great and previously .TV, uh, she wrote that she had a really shitty year, so she thought she would uh, send some funds to a place that uh, helped her through it in a small way. So what? Very oh, nice of nice. her. Thanks, Thank buddy. You. Give a shout out to KF. That has nothing to do with chicken. So uh, <laughs> now on to the show. We're here today to talk about once and again, the Seal Award drama, family <laughs> drama. No, I wish. it's now and again, the U.S. government uh, right. super spy yes. genetic with Dennis Haysbert. Is that what <laughs> yeah, we're here to exactly. talk about? Tara, tell us what we're here to talk about. No, we're here to talk about here and now. And joining us here and now is Joe Reed. Joe! Hey! Yeah! You guys have I done joke. so much with the place. It looks nothing like what it was <laughs> when I was last here. So Here and Now is the new HBO drama from Alan Ball, formerly of Six Feet Under. It premiered last Sunday. It's obviously streaming on HBO Go and wherever else you get your HBO On Demanditude. And I was struck by the premiere, which, by the way, is the only episode I watched, that we got screeners for four. I did not care to continue watching after episode one. Read into um, that how you will. <laughs> uh, no, it's because I didn't I didn't like it and I will not be continuing to watch. I'll just put that out on Front Street. However, I was struck by the um, the uh, structure of the first episode was sort of similar to Six Feet Under, except instead of meeting all of the members of a particular family while they're about to get Horrible news, which in right. that case is that their dad died. Uh, in this case, they're all getting ready to go to their dad's birthday. And at a certain point, I realized that similarity and realized I wished the dad did die. Joe, your yes. thoughts? <laughs> no, that's not a bad way to start off because the dad played by Tim Robbins is easily my least favorite character, Ugh. which says a lot because there's a lot of unlikable characters in this. Um, but he's not even played by an actor I particularly like. I've never been a huge Tim Robbins fan, at least for the past 15 years or so. I feel like that like Mystic River Academy Award where I was like, no. <laughs> and so ever since then, I've been. I mm -hmm. used to have a big crush on him. Like, yeah, back in the day, I would have I mean, yeah, yeah. knocked someone the fuck out to make out with him yeah. now even if you were like already on the ground i would still be like mm. <laughs> just step over him <laughs> yeah i'll knock him out and then help you up and we'll go hang out like that's yeah <laughs> it was shit stick river you're totally right 
Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the one. That's the thing that did it. Uh, this is a show that's gotten really, really bad reviews. I know yeah. there was one of my coworkers did a, did a post on it the one day where it was just like, it's shocking that an HBO series has gotten this bad reviews because usually you at least get that like modicum of respect for an HBO show where people are willing to sort of give it a little bit of leeway. Yeah. And that is hasn't been the case. But that means that I feel like I like this show a little bit more than most people do in that, like, I'm willing to stick around with it because there are things that I like about it. It's having watched the first four episodes that were provided to critics. It gets both. It gets more annoying (laughs) after the first episode, if you believe it. The things that I like become narrower, but I like them more. I think the thing that I like the most about this show. So it's just to give like a synopsis joe if i may paint a picture for everybody paint that picture for me Dave. if someone from inside the big little lies universe like a character tried to create a jj abrams show while jim carrey <laughs> was whispering numerology garbage in their ears you would have this show and end of discussion because i can't possibly add anything to that <laughs> sure so tim robbins and holly hunter are uh married parents of Three adult children and a teenager. The three adult children are all adopted from cue the eye roll places that the American foreign policy has like meddled in. So they have a son from Vietnam and a daughter from Liberia and a son from Colombia. And they are very sort of self-consciously good, progressive, liberal parents. They met at Berkeley and they were activists and yada, yada. And the show, to its credit, sort of views them with the appropriate amount of side eye for that. Maybe, you know, an appropriate amount of side eye. Maybe they deserve more. Mm-hmm. But um the the children, the the children are all resentful to one degree or another. Uh uh the oldest two, played by uh Jerrica Hinton, who's from Grey's Anatomy, who I loved on Grey's Anatomy, I will say. As the, I was wondering if that was one of the things about the show that you would say you liked. I did. I don't like that character. I think that's a very sour character. I think yeah. the, the big thing about those two characters is they're very aware of how resentful they are about their parents and their parents sort of like using them as uh, avatars of their own great liberal values. Mm-hmm. And then they're also jealous of their younger brother, Ramon, the one from Colombia, because he can pass more easily for white and their parents have treated him differently. And this is all conveyed through these very sort of talky, we're going to give you everything very plain and not yes. really a lot. We give you a whole lot of subtext, which is a huge weakness of the show. But the Ramon character is the thing that's going to keep me with it, at least for now, if only because you still don't have a whole ton of like good gay characters on TV and watching him in the very first episode, he flirts with this barista and they end up like hooking up in this sort of unexpected way where you think at the beginning that it's just this sort of like one-sided crush or whatever. And they spend a lot of the first four episodes sort of like getting to know each other in like in various stages of like in bed or sort of like lingering around the apartment in that way you do in sort of the early stages of a relationship where you don't ever want to leave your apartment. Um, And that still, to me, has value. And that, I think, I like the actor who plays Ramon. He was really good in that movie, It Follows, if you remember that movie. Oh, yeah. That's where he's from, sure. Mm -hmm. Um, He's the character who gets saddled with a lot of, like, the numerology stuff, which isn't going anywhere, to be fair. But (laughs) I remember how much we all said the same thing about The Leftovers. Yeah, in its first season, because The Leftovers first season, nobody remembers how much, like, everybody hated that show in its first season. And then a lot of us sort of like came around. So, yeah, this is not a good show, but I find it watchable 
in its not goodness. So, <laughs> so I have a question for Tara based on something uh, Joe said. Joe said that uh, in the early stages of a relationship, you just want to stay in your house. Uh, Tara, uh, care to comment? <laughs> Sometimes that happens at the end stages of relationship <laughs> as well. <laughs> Look, I went outside today. All right, so just okay. just get off my back. Um, Sarah, you also only watched one episode. What was it about it that about the pilot that drove you away? Um, well, I hope everyone packed a lunch because it was just everything, like pretty much everything about it. Like I do like the characters or the actors who play Ramon and Henry. I basically like, I don't have any trouble with the, with the actors really, or the acting, except, uh, young bacon is not, is not up to this, but. The, She's oh not, yeah, Kevin no. Bacon and Kira Sedgwick's daughter plays the biological. She child. could not look more like an if they made it from Conan of her parents. Yeah. Like she's lovely. She'll get the hang of it, but like she's Claire Fisher and we've seen that before. Like yeah. here's yeah. the other issue. It's not just that these characters are all kind of hateful or <laughs> despicable. It's that the show hates all of them also. So why yeah. make the fucking show? And also why make the show again? Cause you already made this show. Mm. Basically, this is just like more pretentious and more of a glib try hard, like quote take on angst in Trump's America. Like I don't need a take on that. It reminds me of, Sarah, you'll sort of remember this, uh, and Tara maybe too, it's the Trump version of what brothers and sisters had with the Bush administration. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where it was like very yeah. self-conscious of like the political times we're living in, but mm -hmm. it's not really curious enough to go out into a whole lot of other experiences. Well, but at least that felt like a lived-in portrayal of siblings. Like it felt like someone in the writers room had had a sibling or spent yes. time with the sibling. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is just this cardboard bullshit. Like fucking we get it, Alan Ball, you despised your mom. Go to fucking yeah. therapy. I don't have time for your shit. Like I yeah. wanted to quit this 18 minutes in, but <laughs> I could sense that Tara also wanted to do that and I was like oh, <laughs> I know she's going to gut it out anyway, so I'm getting to the end of this episode. <laughs> but when the, his fucking regular sex worker got him a cock sling, I was like, yeah. fuck yeah. you. Like, don't be such a baby. We've heard of cock slings. Get over and it. And that's such an American beauty affectation, too. Oh, this yes. the show sort of like careened between the six feet under thing and the American beauty thing. Yes. And then in further episodes, they deal more with this Muslim American family. And there's a lot of nobody saw this movie. Remember when Alan Ball made that movie Towelhead? Yes. About uh -huh. the Muslim American girl. And it was it's it was bad. It was real bad. Um, and so I was like, wow, you're really sort of just like going from like influence to influence. And the only one you're not doing is True Blood, which, while not always great, was at least fun. Mm -hmm. And this show isn't really set up for fun, but really, it sure doesn't deliver it. I'll say that. Yeah, I just... I just don't think I see the point of like working over like at least six feet under you had like the semi interesting or new peg of the funeral home and how yeah. that could parallel things like it wasn't exactly the lightest touch. And that show made a lot <laughs> of mistakes. But I also wonder if that show didn't really benefit from being like at the at the vanguard of prestige TV Exactly, because yeah. if it it has not aged well, in my opinion, 
the yeah. ways in which it's bad are still terrible and the ways in which it was good were actually not that good. And it's like, you know, you but you stuck with that show because there was the one Sunday HBO show. And now, like, the whole dial is Sunday HBO shows. Yeah. And right. here and now, I was like, when he spots the picture at the end of the pilot, and, like, I like that actor a lot who plays his therapist. And I was like, you know, yes. I, like, maybe I should keep... And then I was like, no. <laughs> I, I can't. I yeah. don't have time <laughs> for this much like pretension. And it just seems. Oh, you have no idea. The second episode, the pretension in the second episode. Oh, I think oh, I yeah. have an idea. Poor Holly Hunter. What the <laughs> fuck? Uh, like, could there be a more cardboard Portlandian? No, there couldn't. <laughs> she is the, uh, I, uh, she runs the empathy initiative or the empathy something or other. Just, mm-hmm. And it's where Kelly Taylor works. The foundation foundation. Come on, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they bring her in because somebody wants to start a white, this is spoilers, but it's not a big spoiler, a white heritage uh, student group, just like there's like, you know, an Asian student group and a African American okay. student group. And so uh-huh. she's brought into like kumbaya, the whole brouhaha between all these students. And it ends in this kumbaya way too. It's so bad. But then they're also like just reading the cliff notes of each uh, side of the argument. Like it really did read like a Reddit thread. Cause this is like, you know, <laughs> it's uh first year college students arguing to each other about, the realities in Trump's America. Well, that's what I was just about to say. It just feels like the the writers got all of the, like, copied these emotions from Instagram instead of actually feeling them. Yeah. But Reddit thread yeah. is a better way to put it. So, yeah, totally. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the second episode manages to be a little more boring than the first episode while moving <laughs> the mystery box shit up 0%. So, I don't know what the show really wants to be. And... After two hours of it, I am totally not willing to stick around and find out what it is. Well, Joe, do you want to talk a little bit about the eleven eleven stuff? Which, when it happened, I was like, "What is this sensate?" Which I haven't even watched that show. <laughs> just that, like, that's my general impression right. of what it is. But go ahead. Sure. So the Ramon character uh, starts seeing the number eleven eleven places on clocks, and sort of it's that phenomenon that is a real thing. Where, like, if you for whatever reason, this happens to me, where I always notice. When the clock reads eleven eleven in a way that I don't notice other numbers, but it's one of those things where it's like also yeah. twelve thirty four. Oh, that's it's also one eleven here while you're saying this, which is oh, oh it is. Wow. spooky, but go ahead. That's yeah. Um, but it's also that thing where like if you buy a red car, you start seeing yeah, the same yeah. red car yes. everywhere on the highway. Sure. Anyway, so he starts seeing this number everywhere, and then it culminates at this this birthday party for his father, where he sees in the kitchen the four candles sort of start burning this very like intense flames in its four, you know, parallel columns, one, 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 one. And this is the early indication that he perhaps possibly is uh, succumbing to some sort of schizophrenia, which runs in Holly Hunter's family, which makes her like extra sensitive about it. And this is how he ends up going to the psychiatrist. And then he has this sort of connection to the psychiatrist where the photo of the psychiatrist's mother is what appeared in his dream at the beginning of the first episode. So there's a lot of why is this happening to Ramon? He continues to have these hallucinations and then these flashbacks as does, as the series goes along, the shrink starts to have these hallucinations and he has a whole past. So there's a lot of, you know, big question marks at the periphery 
does it have to do with any kind of magical realism or is it, you know, it we you get the sense that like the show isn't going to make it just about mental illness because these other characters are also going through this stuff too. Right. Um you're it, Dave's right in that it is a huge setup for a lot of this like mystery box stuff that very well could just be like kicking the can down the road to the end of the season just to keep you on the hook. Well, but and speaking of the leftovers like since we've just seen that done quite a bit yeah. better at least in terms yeah. of keeping it ambiguous as to exactly what's real versus what's a sort of emotional like flash to the side yeah like i don't it's hard to do well i actually liked the first season of the leftovers more than most people but it's yeah. like watching a show trying to find footing that it shouldn't even be on in the first place is like right yeah i'm gonna go watch uh trixie and katya well and especially because it seems like what they might be leading towards is this kind of like you know, all cultures have some sort of shared psychic whatever. And I really am not super optimistic that that (laughs) will be the poetic sort of, you know, denouement that they want it to be. Well, to me, it just also felt like the idea originally for the series was this, this blended family or this family with all these adopted kids. And then someone was like, it can't just be that. Rastify them by 10%. Yeah. I'd like it a lot better if it seemed like any of the family members liked each other even a little bit, but yeah, they really, there is no feeling they're all hateful. I wouldn't like any of them either. I don't, but I feel like that (laughs) would make them less hateful is if there was some indication that like they have these bonds, like, and it just feels like even among like, uh, Duke and Ashley, the two oldest ones who sort of hate everybody else in the family, but they're like close, but they don't seem particularly like, loving towards each other either and it just it takes away any kind of recognizability in family dynamics because it's like even when i'm you know even when we're like annoyed at our family members there's still this sort of baseline emotion that doesn't seem present in this show yeah i'd also like to say now that we have a hat track hat trick of feckless philosophy professors yeah on tv <laughs> that'll do pick another yeah. line of work tv writers yeah. we get it <laughs> I just this is like just pedantic, but in in the second episode, I think it's the second episode where Tim Robbins uh, drives to a um, midway of a highway, and it's Highway Eleven, so it's like the signs say North Eleven, South Eleven, so it says Eleven Eleven. Yeah, I just looked it up. It's nowhere near Portland. It's on the other side of the state. <laughs> Turn this off. Yeah. I, uh, my final thought on this, which other than that, it, this is a sell for me, um, <laughs> meaning I would not buy it, is yeah. uh, the fact that that giving your show a generic, meaningless title like here and now, like it, it sets up so many expectations of like trying to be of this moment that yes. you can't possibly meet. Like it's sort of like the theory of would people have hated girls if it was not called girls? Right. You know what I mean? Like right. if it had a more specific focus even just in its title than it did and so here and now is like no and no (laughs) (laughs) it is time to go around the dial first stop tara queer eye is back on netflix uh i believe it dropped last last week sometime uh, with an all new Fab Five, none of them are known to me except for Jonathan Van Ness, who is the hair guy and who is known on the internet as the star of Gay of Thrones. Which look it up; it's very funny. 
um, and possibly Tan, the fashion guy, may be known in Britain. He might be a personality there. He has a British accent. That's all I know. I will jump in really quickly. Please. Uh, Karamo, the culture guy, was on The Real World Philadelphia. Yeah. One of That's the worst- him? Yes, one of the worst scenes of the real world. And he was really annoying on that show. He really (laughs) has come around. Yeah, Uh, I liked him here. He's great here. Yeah, Yeah. he's he's like the turnaround for that guy is huge as uh, you know, continue. Uh, So, yeah, he's the culture guy. The food and drink guy is named Anthony. Food and drink guy is going to be named Anthony Reed soon enough, I will say. (laughs) Yeah, that guy is really cute. He real cute. Um, so the show is like what you remember. It's very heartwarming. It's, you know, a, an, a full life makeover show. And it's, you know, part of what's baked into its premise is like these straight guys who you don't know how receptive they might be to having gay people anywhere in their life before this happened. And by the end, they're like, you guys are all right. And they've they've really amped that up by setting this season. As far as I can tell, the three episodes that I watched were all in Georgia. And that's where the Fab Five loft is in Atlanta. But the third episode is a problem. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say it, but um, the makeover-y is a cop. And so the five of them are driving to his place in somewhere, Marietta, I think, whatever, some place in Georgia. Um, And they're on the highway and they get pulled over and they're they're in the truck and there's like a truck cam. You know, obviously, they're like five guys crammed in a car. There's no camera operator in it. And they are all not super psyched about this experience, particularly since Karamo, who is is driving and he's black. So the cop is like really cold and aggressive and and they're all like really on their guard and tan in the back seat is like oh no it's because he saw me because tan is of pakistani descent we find out in the previous episode um and then the cop tells karamo to get out and jonathan in the back seat is like i don't want him to and then it turns out this is a setup because he's the nominator of the cop makeover subject ha oh. like no ha ha no, 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 that's not okay. No. And I was tweeting about this yesterday and someone tweeted that they read an interview with the producer who was asked by a black interviewer, like, Do you, don't you think that that's dicey to have this joke happen? And she, or he was not black and was like, well, you know, maybe, but we did it anyway. We didn't know that Karamo would be driving. So there was no way we could, you know, stop him without ruining it. And it's like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. That's not okay. Like, it's going to be dicey enough, even if it was five white gay guys in a truck in Georgia, they might be alarmed at, like, what possibly could happen, especially if the only cameras that are around are maybe not visible or not obvious. So that's a whole thing. And then the guy turns out to have, like, a MAGA hat in his bedroom, and, like, there's a Trump-Pence sign in the garage. And so by the time you get to that point, like, you're already like, fuck this guy and his cop friends. Like, fuck everything. So I don't want him to get a nice makeover. I want him to go to hell. But uh, he does get a nice makeover anyway. And he and Karamo have a conversation where it's supposedly, like, the idea is building bridges. And he's like, I understand where Black Lives Matter came from, but they couldn't be heard and cops can't be heard. And like, no, those aren't the same. You can't both sides this issue. There are not two sides. There's a side and it's the right one. And fuck you. Like, so I haven't watched past this one because it left such a bad taste in my mouth. Um, Whatever this guy's name was. Fuck him. If you're listening, (laughs) fuck you. And uh, that's it. But Queer Eye is still good. And my plug is for gentlemen to Weevil. <laughs> <laughs> I will watch the rest of the season, but that one was bad. And I, you know, putting it that early in the run was like a weird decision because it's so off putting anyway. 
Uh, my plug is for my coverage of Catfish. This season, the gimmick is that's double the the reveals, and generally, there's been like a, some kind of a quote twist, unquote. And they are really, even if you have been watching in a while, tune back in to see how hard they are trying to make Mrs. Neve a oh, thing. Yeah, it's oh, like no. double the Mrs. Neve and Max. No. Yeah. Mrs. Max was in the last episode, too. No one wants. No, no. I mean, I think Mrs. Max, like, whatever, she was just there, and they were like, it would be fun if we got you on camera, too, and she did not seem to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But Mrs. Neve is clearly trying to launch some kind of showbiz career off of this, and, like, every time they cut to her saying nothing in their interviews about, like, whatever the current case is, because she has nothing to say, because there is nothing to say, they're all the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's infuriating. So um, if you enjoy me yelling about that, please go and read my coverage <laughs> of previously.tv. Not everybody can be as as fortunate as Chrissy Teigen to have Tara and I come around on. <laughs> I will never come around on Mrs. Neve. Never. <laughs> <laughs> promises, promises. Uh, Joe, what do you got? Uh, I got a couple things. I'll promise to be brief about all of them. First off, uh, American Crime Story, the assassination, assassination of Gianni Versace. It's fucking great. Um, It's not the show that I think a lot of people were expecting. And I think there's a sort of air of disappointment around it for that. It is not really about Gianni Versace very much. It's also not really about the big high profile cast members that they cast in this, uh, particularly Penelope Cruz as Donatella Versace and Ricky Martin as uh, Versace's uh, lover, the guy who sort of, you know, found him on the sidewalk in front of the house. Um, they are very much backburnered. This is very much the Andrew Kananen show. And I think it's fascinating. I think Darren Chris is doing a fantastic job. It's sort of moving backwards through the timeline where the first episode we see Versace get killed and we're sort of backing up through the other murders that Kunanen committed leading up to that. And as a result, the other murders get a lot more attention than you maybe expect and because these weren't with the exception of he killed a uh a real estate tycoon lee miglin in chicago who was like a big deal for being a rich person but he wasn't famous and then before that he killed two acquaintances of his and the most recent episode that's aired as we're recording this uh called house by the lake uh is about the first murders that kunanan commits uh particularly focused on this one uh a man named David Madsen, played by Australian actor Cody Fern, who I had never seen in anything else, who's totally phenomenal in this. The episode is utterly heartbreaking, and it nails the theme of the strongest theme of the season, which for me is how the sort of low-grade but everywhere homophobia of the 90s, where the 90s was still sort of this, like, weird crossroads of homophobia, where, like, people were, you know, getting more getting a little bit more aware and getting a little bit better but it was still sort of everywhere it wasn't as overt but like the cops all sort of they you know the cops who investigate the versace killing they sneer and who investigate this other the murder of jeff trail they come and they sort of have their little side eye glances and all of that comes to play in this episode and you watch it sort of like close around this uh david madsen until he really can't escape it and there's a scene in a sort of roadhouse bar that is utterly heartbreaking. And it's some of the best stuff. I would say the best stuff that Ryan Murphy's ever done. I don't know if anybody else is watching, but well, Sarah is cause she's been doing epic old yes. caps of it. So I'm throwing it to Sarah to, uh, to respond. Um, yeah, I, I was not sure about their decision to go back in time, but I think as the series has unfolded, that is really paying off. 
Uh, I think Darren Chris is excellent. And I think Joe, what you said is right on, especially since like, it's tempting to think that the show wants you to sympathize with Cunanan, but I think that's not exactly true. I think they want you to see that he leveraged his own self-loathing and the loathing of the rest of the world or not everyone in the rest of the world, but much of the rest of the world for right. gay men at that time that, I think that's that was right. still existing yeah. s- to his own ends because he was a sociopath right. and also just a little sociopath. asshole. Like it, this performance yeah. is not vain <laughs> at all. Like, no, he's really willing to be like, he had a crying Dawson moment. I put the gif in my recap last <laughs> to it that I was like, <laughs> no, you really have to, you just have to do it. This role. And he's, yeah. he's great. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. I will catch up. I'm too behind. Uh, it's yes. definitely worth it. I will say. I, uh, second thing I wanted to bring up, uh, Tara, have you watched Shit's Creek yet? I know we were talking about this on Twitter. Have not yet. I was, I was saving it for when we next need a show to start. We haven't finished the Punisher yet, which I'm sure. We will. Sure. This is a Canadian comedy series from, uh, Eugene Levy and his son, Dan Levy, uh, also starring Catherine O'Hara and Annie Murphy plays these, uh, the, the, sister to Dan Levy's character. There's is a wealthy family. They have, they're like a video store fortune essentially. And <laughs> they lose everything and they have to sort of hole up in this little town of Schitt's Creek, which like the father bought on a whim decades <laughs> ago. And they stay in this like little crappy motel and it's just incredibly funny. It's uh, like Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara are like predictably fantastic. Catherine O'Hara's character is a former soap opera actress who then married this, uh, this wealthy man. And she's like utterly just disconnected from all sorts of reality, but she's very dramatic in that sort of soap opera actress way. But the two uh, adult children, Dan Levy and Annie Murphy's character, David and Alexis Rose are the reason to watch it. Just, just them sort of like, speaking to each other or having nonverbal reactions to each other is so incredibly funny. If you watch the show, there is a YouTube video that's just uh, like three minutes of Alexis saying David, like (laughs) repeating it over and over and over again. It's utterly phenomenal. I think Tara, you will really like it. Yeah, it was the kind of it was the show where when it started, people were like, it's pretty good. And then over the course of several seasons, it's like seems to be appointment TV for people on Twitter. So I was curious to know if you thought we would. Yeah, and I don't think it's that the show gets like the the learning curve of it like swoops swoops up or anything. I think it's good from the break. I just think like people took a while to catch on to it because right. it's a CBC show. It and like, it's on it pop airs, here, which people it's on pop here, is. and the episodes here air like you know weeks uh, if not months later. So there's that sort of there's a lot of signifiers of like you know don't bother with it, but like don't right. listen to those signifiers because it's great. So for a plug, um, go to Decider.com. It's where I am at every day writing about TV and film and everything that's on streaming. If you want to check out my author page there, I've got an article about Versace. I've got an article about Schitt's Creek. So all this stuff that I just, uh, you know, exuded about, go and read it. (laughs) Exuded? Is that the right word? Exalted? Extruded? Whatever. Adjectives are fun, you guys. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Those are fun. All right, Sarah, um, I'm I'm interested. I'm curious about your topic this week because uh, somebody on the forums mentioned that the premiere of this episode seemed to be mocking uh, our site. It said trolling us. Trolling us. Yes. Um, yeah, that's totally possible because like pretty much everything that I used to have in my show, Omatics on Previously TV, was present. There was the cry face. 
uh, Carrie's intransigent mm-hmm. rudeness. We're talking about Homeland. We haven't mentioned that. Yes, sorry. Oh, yeah, we Homeland. were talking about Homeland. Uh, <laughs> its seventh season premiered on Showtime last Sunday. Um, it is, as usual, a solid season premiere that sucks you into what is going to be the season plot uh, while offering possibly satisfying parallels to Trump's America that you can root for Carrie um, during while still being frustrated by her complete lack of socialization and using of people, her emotional delays when it comes to how to keep her family satisfied that she's okay. And the writers thinking that we want to see her family or kids or any other kids involved in any way. Like apparently, uh, Maggie's daughter Josie is gonna be Dana 2.0. Diamond Hard Pass on any of that. I'ma be fast forwarding those scenes because I don't care. But I'm in for another season mostly because it's like dumbly watchable in the best way of late season shows, especially showtime shows, which just kind of like start banging into stuff and drooling, and it's like just just have it put down they won't like that's our brand like that's not that's not a brand that's that's cruelty right um but i would love to know if those are the dave are those the reasons that people thought we were i don't know i just saw that they thought they were yeah someone trolling tweeted it. oh yeah okay well makes sense yeah i quit last season dave i think watched to the finale but i forget if you even got that far that was last season damn yeah the one with Jake Weber and like the server, the troll farms or whatever. Sure. Let's say yes. <laughs> it is funny to think of like, cause you sort of do feel like a show ceases to exist once you stop. Yes, watching it. it's true. Yeah. Um, yes. But no, the, the stupidity of huevos rancheros will, will live on in my uh-huh. heart and in John Ramos's <laughs> hi, John. For my uh, plug, um, speaking of things that don't suck, uh, it is Market Sarah Talk About Songs versus the Oscars round two. That episode ooh. will be dropping in a couple of weeks' time, and the Honorable Joe Reed will be presiding as our guest hey. to talk Hooray. about this year's nominated songs. Very excited. He doesn't like you. He's grumpy as can be. He doesn't like fun. That's plain to see. Time to ask, will they pay this? Probably. <laughs> so the stars have a line that we actually have three shows to talk about today on will dave hate this so we're going to do a little bit differently we're going to um sort of recap what each show is about i'll ask some questions and then at the end of it we'll sort of try to uh the panel will try to rank the shows on will dave hate this nisticity <laughs> going from yep. Most hateable to probably most lovable. So with yep. that, uh, let's go to our first show. Um, Fast and Furious director Justin Lin will be directing the Magnum P.I. reboot pilot uh, remake, I guess. Um, he is a very prolific director in addition to some of the Fast and Furious movies, including Tokyo Drift, Fast and Furious, Fast Five, Six, um, and Nine and Ten, which are rumored. He also directed the several episodes of true detective he directed some communities he directed the pilot of swat he is apparently directing a movie version of hot wheels and space jam 2 <laughs> okay so the the reason that i put this in is because it might be an incongruous match of this guy even though he has obviously action chops um putting him with a product that or a franchise that dave has loved so much will dave hate this we don't know thing the second 
Amazon is doing a series adaptation of the movie Hannah. It's probably pronounced Hannah, but I'm from Buffalo, so I say Hannah. Yep. Um, uh, the 2011 movie directed by Joe Wright that starred Saoirse Ronan as a girl sort of raised feral in the woods as a child assassin type. Uh, her, the guy who played her father was Eric Bana. I'm pretty sure the woman who played her mother was Vicky Creeps from uh, from Phantom Thread, oh. who is now getting a whole lot of shine. I'll look that up while you're continuing. Thank you. Uh, and Kate Blanchett played this sort of uh, evil government agent sent to track down Hannah and and kill her, I suppose. <clears throat> it's a fantastic movie. Uh, Joe Wright brings a lot to it. Joe Wright, who directed uh, Atonement and Anna Karenina and this year's Darkest Hour, which is a better movie than people say it is. So go <laughs> watch true. it. Um, it's true. She did play Hannah's mother. That is. <laughs> yes. So for the Amazon uh, remake, they are cast. They have cast uh, Joel Kinnaman, Dave's favorite, Joel Kinnaman, <laughs> as Eric, the uh, the Eric Bana father role. And in the the killing reunion that we've all been clamoring for, um, Mirelle, Mireille, how do we pronounce Mireille Enos uh, from The Killing and other things uh, is in the Kate Blanchett role. And that. Feels like all anybody really needs to know about that Amazon Joel Kinnaman, the killing re- reunion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scorsese and the creators of Vikings are planning the Caesars. Um, the screenwriter of Elizabeth and creator of both Showtime's The Tudors and History Channel's Vikings is teaming with director Martin Scorsese for a new series, The Caesars a television drama several seasons long about the early rulers of ancient Rome, beginning with the rise to power of Julius Caesar. Um, so it's young Caesar, sort of like there was young Henry VIII and the Tudors. Yes, but not like young Sherlock Holmes, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> probably. Uh, I mean, d- does this sound like Dave Nip? Kind of, but here's the seamy underbelly of this. Uh, Scorsese has produced such things like Boardwalk Empire and final for television. (laughs) And uh, that could mean nothing, but it could be the kind of bloated self-indulgent twaddle that is impatient (laughs) making for Dave's of our acquaintance. Will Dave hate this? We don't know yet. Uh, Just to clarify, this Magnum PI reboot is not the Magnum PI reboot that they were talking about about a year and a half ago, which was going to be Magnum's daughter. This is actually just, you know, there's a new Magnum. Magnum. Uh, can you have a Magnum if it's not Tom Selleck? Shrug emoticon. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, 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 I've racked my brain trying to think of who they even could cast who would like capture that same kind of roguishness. Hear me out, Justin Theroux. Yeah, I think. I mean, there's no talk of of casting yet, as far as I know. Like, I don't think it's impossible. I think you could find someone that would be good. Like. You know, Josh Holloway is obviously the bad version of this, but someone with yeah. that kind of Ugh. that kind of swagger is a dumb word. But you know what I mean? I would go John Hamm. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not sure that would end of discussion. <laughs> I'm not sure that would be enough, though. Yeah, this doesn't uh, excite me terribly. I, I just feel like, oh, boy, this is such a show of its time. And to make it relevant, you're going to have to change it enough that it's just going to be one of those in name only remakes, you know, yeah. like. You know, mm-hmm. what's that? Um, you know, you're watching Dynasty like that has nothing to do yeah. with Dynasty. Like that could be anything. Right? No, it's totally yeah. different. I mean, it's, it's just marketing. You know, it has some similarities, but it's a very right. But it's just a marketing ploy. And I feel like that might be the case here when it's all said and done. Unless, you know, they start doing really awesome stuff like uh, going with my suggestion that RuPaul play 
Higgins and Robin Masters both. Seriously. Um, Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Like it has to be either utterly faithful to the original or blow it up on this epic scale. That means it has nothing to do with anything that you liked about the original. So it's a challenge for the production team and or the creative team. And like, it's just one of those projects where um, it's an easy sell, but it's also like a hard thing to say, maybe we just shouldn't do this because it's sort of like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's going to be that unsatisfying middling effort when all said is done probably right all right hana uh oh boy guys you know i've said it before <laughs> but let's stop putting ginnaman and stuff that guy has a gravity well of joy and uh around him that sucks in light <laughs> and entertainment um you know i was talking last week about altered carbon i have not gone back to that because every time i think about it I get angry that it's him in it. <laughs> a couple people uh, emailed me to say, well, you know, that character is like that way in the book. I'm like that way boring or that way stoic, because there's a big difference between <laughs> right. stoic right. and boring. Right. I'd imagine in right. the book, he's probably a stoic character, judging by the first sleeve that we see, the Japanese, you know, they call the body sleeves, uh, Japanese assassin sleeve at the beginning of the show. Like that guy seems stoic. Kinnaman is just dull as Lame. dirt and I cannot yeah. stand it. He, he is just like anti Dave Nip. He is, he is Dave kryptonite. Well, and we recently rewatched Hana um, because it was on, it was like for sale on iTunes for 99 cents or something. So we bought it and watched it again within the last month, probably. And it's so good. Like not it's to say great. there isn't a TV show that you could do with this property. Like I can imagine it being done well, but like, this is this, this does not fill me with hope. You know, who would be in better Eric, Jason Theroux. Than I, said it. <laughs> I think, I, I think the possibility that they could craft a show and, um, you know, a, a, a storyline out of this is, is, is doable. Like there's a lot of material there, although it's like yeah. the super yeah. soldier program, like uh, maybe pop culture could just give that a rest for a while. You know, put mm-hmm. it, there's been a yeah, lot of that, yeah, right. but yep. I can see the possibility there. But then you add Kinnaman in it. I'm like, I'm out guys. I can't do it. Yeah. No dice. Yeah. All right. And then the last one is the Caesar Caesars. And, um, you're totally right. The fact that Martin Scorsese's name on this means absolutely nothing. I, I think we should stop mentioning producers when we talk about TV shows. <laughs> like really like they, yeah. they're there, yeah. but so nebulous. Exactly. Yeah. Like, are they there because they have the money are they there because they're actually pulling the strings behind you? You never really right. can tell, right? And that's right. or they're doing someone a favor, attaching their name so that yes. it gets made. Yes. They're the um, it's like when you get a loan, you need somebody to co-sign it. Like that sometimes <laughs> yeah, is the producer's yeah. job. Or they are they are creatively involved, but they're such you know Rushmoreian figures that no one is going to tell them no. Right. It's like those stories yeah. about when they're doing the Star Wars prequels, and George Lucas would pop in once a week and put gold stars on the costumes he liked, and then leave, and then they would come back <laughs> and do another round next week. Like I feel like that is like oh probably Martin Scorsese's contribution to this. <laughs> that said, I really did enjoy the first uh, sort of through line of the Vikings series for Ragnar. And I thought that the uh, creator who's the creator of this too, what's his name again? Holtz. It's uh Hurst. He wrote, I think every episode of, of Vikings and it's really solid. It, you know, it is in the pop culture, sort of an off season game of Thrones, but it is really entertaining until they uh, ended Ragnar's storyline. And now it's all on his kids. And like, I kind of lost interest, but it was really well crafted. And, and I loved Rome. HBO's Rome. Yeah. I was really sad when that left 
uh, left too soon. Um, I was really into it. I love Roman history. I am looking forward to this. I am excising the Scorsese bit. That is neither a plus nor a minus for me. Uh, I am excited to just be able to go back into this part of history. And young Caesar, young Julius Caesar, um, is actually a really interesting character. Like there's, I don't know if there's a very famous tale from earlier in like when he was just like a teenager where he gets abducted by pirates. You guys know that story? Mm-mm. Oh, it'd be good for television. I don't want to ruin it, but it'd be good for television. Okay, Tara. I think loviest is Hana because Joel Kinnaman is a problem, but Eric is not as big a part and it's possible they could sideline him. And if it's mostly on Hana and she's cool, it could still be good. Medium. The Caesars, Hadiest, Justin Lin directing the Magnum P.I. boot for the reasons that you said that you probably wouldn't watch the show anyway. Interesting. Joe. Uh, I'm going to say Loviest is the Caesars because of the the fact that you liked the early parts of Vikings and there's there are avenues for this to be pretty OK. Medium is the Justin Lin Magnum P.I. reboot because... It's probably not going to be great, but it might not be so objectionable. And I think Hadiest <laughs> is uh, Joel Kinnaman because Dave spent now two weeks talking about how much he hates it. <laughs> <laughs> and Sarah. Um, yeah, we should do a we should add a um, segment called uh, Dave's Kinnaman Corner. <laughs> um, or it could be one of those websites where like it's like our dogs killed in this movie. You know, there's a website for that. You can do one yes. is Joel Kinnaman in this production and then it'll tell you. <laughs> um I also at the Caesars as the likiest. He could hate it because Scorsese has been involved in some things that were not Dave's jam. But Rome is Dave's jam and the Vikings is Dave's jam. And I would say, depending on the network, he is the most likely to like this one. Magnum, impossible to tell, really depends on the casting, which we don't know yet. And in Hadiest place, Hannah, because <laughs> welcome to Kinnaman Corner, uh, population, not Dave. All right. So Joe and Sarah agree on the order and Tara went uh, a little bit, uh, went very different. So yeah. Tara, I know we're married, but apparently not anymore. And I guess I'm going to have to marry Joe and Sarah because they got it just right. And I went as far <laughs> as actually putting numbers on these things uh, from a scale of one to 10. Uh, will Dave hate Hannah? Yes, he will. He'll hate it too. He gets two, two points. Uh, <laughs> Kinnaman is like a deal breaker for me. It is just a deal breaker now. Wow. I cannot deal with him. Done. Uh, Magnum, I'm putting out a three. Um, I'm not really excited about the project just because I feel like it's, it's not like great television, but it's sort of like sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'm definitely looking forward, uh, genuinely looking forward to the Caesars. And I hope I kind of hope that somebody else besides history gets it where they can spend even more money and they can kind of be the long term uh, Rome that Rome couldn't be because there is a lot of it's called the Caesars. So yeah. I assume that the plan is to extend beyond Julius Caesar into Augustus and, you know, all the other guys that follow him. And there's some really great stuff in there. Obviously you have the story of Caesar, which is well known. You have Augustus, which is, you know, he's the best emperor ever. Yay. Then you have, you know, Caligula and Nero and all these fuck ups that come later. That would (laughs) make for great television. So that's my order. So congratulations, uh, Joe and Sarah. that backwards music mean it is time for the no neck that is the evil goatee twin of the canon instead of the uh one of the best episodes 
of a TV show, we're going to go for one of the worst episodes of an otherwise well-regarded TV show. So with that, Joe, take it away. Sure. Thank you. So for my very first Nonak presentation ever, which I feel like is Whoa, is interesting. that true? I know. It's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. I've never, ne- never presented a Nonak. Um, I have brought to the table an episode from one of my favorite comedies of the 2000s, Arrested Development. And not an episode from that divisive fourth season that was on Netflix. That would have been too easy slash too complicated. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of moving parts to that. Whatever. We don't need to talk about it. Instead, I've run an episode from right in the middle of its strongest stretch of episodes. But every time I think of this particular episode, its no-knack ability comes shining through. This is season two, episode 10, titled Ready, Aim, Marry Me. And if that title doesn't immediately clue you in, excuse me, sorry. If that title doesn't immediately clue you into what episode we're talking about, I will just say this is the Martin Short episode. (laughs) So I feel like that says it all kind of. Um... Speaking solely for myself, I don't always hate Martin Short. I watched Inner Space a bunch, just like any kid who enjoyed HBO Free Preview Weekends in the 80s and 90s. I'm possessed! Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me too, because Dennis Quaid. Right, yes, exactly. Um, God, foxy Dennis Quaid, too. Not to Uh-oh. sidetrack ourselves, but yeah. like, for real. Um, Martin Short hosted a Saturday Night Live a few years ago around Christmas time uh, that was pretty, that I was pretty charmed by. I feel like it had its moments. But he brings with him a very specific, a very strong and a uh, very self-focused, very me-focused comic energy that, to put it mildly, does not mesh with every comedic style. A Martin Short guested episode very quickly becomes the Martin Short show and all of that implies. And the often dry and callback heavy comedy of Arrested Development was the water to Short's oil. And we ended up with <laughs> what I would call a pretty disastrous half hour of television. Mm-hmm. So as with any typical Arrested Development episode, there are a billion different plot strands waiting to be strung together. I'm going to do the best I can in sort of uh, giving you the rundown of that. Uh, To start with, Michael Bluth is avoiding a date with Sally Sitwell, who is played by Christine Taylor, but not in this episode because the character's not around. Um, Partly because he thinks she avoided him when he visited her at the office, but mostly because he's a chicken. Chicha! Sally's father, Stan Sitwell, played by Ed Begley Jr., spends the episode trying on wigs to deal with his alopecia and also romancing flawless queen Lucille Ostero, played by Liza Minnelli, who has be uh, who has herself become disillusioned after dating, having dated Job for a few weeks. Meanwhile, Buster, who had previously dated Lucille too, wants to get back together with her, but he is not aware that she's been with Job recently. Meanwhile, there's some business with Tobias uh, and Michael having gotten free spa weekends for two after having won a bachelorette auction in the previous episode. So Tobias uh, blew his free spa weekend on an idiotic dry run, uh, went to enjoy all the spa offerings before taking Lindsay and and he doesn't have it anymore. So Michael, for his part, doesn't want to take Sally Sitwell because, as I mentioned, he's a chicken. Uh, meanwhile, our Lucille, Lucille Bluth, played by Jessica Walter, plants the seed in Michael's head that Lucille, too, is planning on selling the Bluth family business out from under them. And no matter what else is wrong with this episode, Jessica Walter herself is a gem. I certainly hope she's not planning a move. I wouldn't put it past her. She'd love to get at me any way she could. 
that's why she's been flirting with Job. She's trying to prove that she's closer to my children than I am, but the joke's on her because she doesn't know how little I care for Job. <laughs> so with the Bluths once again in need of money, George tell George Bluth tells Michael to uh, it, go to the heretofore unmentioned Uncle Jack. As Ron Howard's persistent voiceover keeps reminding us, he's not their real uncle. We get it. He is uh, an old-timey radio play star turned Jack LaLanne-style fitness guru, and uh, he's played by Martin Short. And when he shows up at the Bluths, he is super old. He's unable to walk after a weightlifting incident uh, several years earlier, and thus he is now carried around by a musclehead manservant named Dragon. I clipped the first minute of Uncle Jack showing up at Lucille's apartment to give you a taste of the tone and temperature of Martin Short's performance. Just know that Buster at this point is wearing an army uniform, and when in the clip you hear Jack say, to the nuts, Dragon places him face first into Michael's crotch. Walk, Dragon, walk! Enter the room! Welcome, Uncle Jack. He's half deaf. It was a stupid, stupid hire. Not hire! Eye level! Eye level! Kisses, and then we talk. Which one is Michael? Uh, Swoop me! Uh, I uh, really appreciate you coming over, Uncle Jack. Thank you for having me. You may be amazed. Uh, I'm invited into very few personal homes. To the nuts! The bridge mix! The bridge mix! Fool! Hey, fake Uncle Jack. Oh, is this the boy? Is this the little one? My God, you're an army man. <laughs> I was never in the army. I was in the pictures. Here comes Uncle Jack. Shoot me! Oh, oh, oh. Look at that, I pinned him. I pinned the army man. God bless you for being in the army. Oh. Up dragon! That was only a minute and not the 15 that it felt like. Um, <laughs> Uncle Jack is a very typical Martin Short character. He is deeply, loudly strange, with plenty of opportunities for outbursts and physical comedy. He is lecherous towards Lindsay, and he fancies himself fit as a fiddle, even though he... Uh, he cannot walk and he spits up whenever dragon shakes him too vigorously. Uh, Michael, meanwhile, ends up setting Jack up on a spa date with Lindsay. She thinks she's going on a date with dragon who she is predictably hot for. And all of the plot threads and characters end up converging at the spa where Buster finds out about Job and Lucille too. Everybody finds out about Sitwell and Lucille too. Uncle Jack launches himself at Tobias in a fight over Lindsay and Lucille, too, looks at the whole mess and says now she is going to try and sell the Bluth Company because she's over all of them. It's not like there's nothing good in this episode. Uh, Lucille attempting air quotes with a martini in her hand is always <laughs> going to be great. The little gags and callbacks like the blue hand prints that are all over the model home are wonderful and subtle. And who can resist Lindsay and Job's dual chicken dances? That's not true. That's not true at all. Chicha! 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 What is that? Is that a chicken? What's this? Oh, Michael's scared to ask out Sally. No, I'm not. Oh, this is priceless. Go, 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 but the rest of the episode uh, is a real dud. The Tobias says accidentally homoerotically suggestive things bit is usually pretty good, but he gets way too overdone here uh, with him and Michael going back and forth. The big punchlines are both strained and sweaty. I, I hate to see you struggle like this. In fact, why don't you let me ask her for you? Oh, Michael, you really are quite the Cupid, aren't you? 
I tell you, you can zing your arrow into my buttocks anytime. Okay, you know, you know what you do? You, you buy yourself a tape recorder, you just record yourself for a whole day. I think you're going to be surprised at some of your phrasing. <gasps> Butterscotch! Want a lick? Mm. Uh, it's an overly <laughs> effortful tone that's present in the Martin Short stuff as well. The physical comedy of Short taking a header into Michael's crotch might work in a vacuum, but it's just wildly off-tone for Arrested Development. His presence throws the whole episode off its balance. Even the Ron Howard narration and its repetition of he's not their real uncle isn't really all that funny. There are like a billion better narration bits on the in the history of the show. Also, it probably deserves to be said, and it's not really the episode's fault exactly, but recent events and revelations have really put a cap on how much I'm able to laugh at Jeffrey Tambor these days. And yeah. he's not in the episode much, but when he is, I just, it ruins everything. David Cross, not great either. Yeah, yeah, oh, good yeah. point. So this episode to me really sticks out like a Thorsum in the middle of a, uh, uh, in the middle of a season that featured things like Mother Boy and Anne Veal and Girls with Low Self Esteem, all these you know really great highlights of the show. It is not a completely worthless episode, I would say, but it is a drop in quality severe enough that I think it merits no neck consideration. So I leave it all to you. We should let Dave go first because he said something so funny while we're watching. <laughs> go ahead. Dave. All right. Well, I don't know if it's so funny, but it's telling, anyways. Well, funny to me. <clears throat> we started watching, and I was unsure what episode this was. In my mind, I thought it might have been one of the um, maybe is a film producer because of the "Marry Me" oh, yeah. part of <laughs> the right. title. Right. Right. And I'm like, I don't know what Joe was thinking, nominating whatever this one is, but. It, Certainly cannot be as bad as the Martin Short. Oh, this is the Martin Short one. <laughs> so you had my vote as soon as I figured out what it was. Because for me, this is the no-nag episode of Arrest Development. And certainly there are more lackluster episodes in the fourth season and even the third season. But like that is, it's just lackluster. It's not like a terrible product. It's just boring, right? And this one is like actively bad. and. Even though like the first seven, eight minutes are pretty funny, I really loved the martini uh, joke run, mm-hmm. oh, which God, includes so people funny. slipping on it as they come in later. <laughs> <Was> your mother here? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I, and it started off on, and I was thinking like, what is Joe thinking? These, these are funny bits. It's got the chicken dance. And I was like, oh shit, here comes Martin Short. <laughs> and the problem with the Martin Short is he is the banana in your smoothie. Yep. He is the uh-huh. olives on your pizza. Once you put Martin Short into something, all you can taste is Martin Short. Yep. And oh. I have a theory about... Get a tape recorder. <laughs> well, what happened here is somebody on the creative team, whether it was, you know, Hurwitz or whatever, really just likes Martin Short and wanted to work with him and put him in this project, not being able to fit Martin Short into, you know, that peg hole. And it really, really shows like his comedy is so different from what they're going after. And Tara said, well, watching this is like for such a broad show, it really puts everybody's um, portrayals of the characters in perspective when you get somebody like Martin Short screaming his way through the episode. Like you think Job's loud, you think uh, Tobias is stupid, and then you get the Martin Short character and you're like, oh, there's actually a lot of subtlety. (laughs) Yeah. To what people are bringing to rest of development <laughs> characters yeah. that you don't appreciate mm-hmm. until you have this bludgeon that is Martin Short's character come in. Yeah. And for those reasons, for shoehorning Martin Short and his comedy stylings 
into this episode. And I agree, Martin Short's done a lot of funny in the past, just not here. Um, it is very no knack worthy. And I think my argument starts and ends there. Yeah, I'll go next since you already mentioned me. Yeah, I think the thing is, it's he's pitched so much bigger than everyone else. And you don't you don't think of the other performances as being understated until they have to play off him. And he's so like he's just on a totally other register. It's like he's from the moon, like he does not fit into this world at all. That's the problem. Like the sore thumb is exactly right. And even as Dave said, like Buster and Job being kind of the more ridiculous characters, like you still feel like they fit in that world in a way that uncle Jack totally doesn't. And like, not to be whatever about it, but also the stuff with like him not being able you know, refusing to use a wheelchair and like spitting up, like it's, that's uncomfortable to watch too. Like let's, let's not ridicule people who have physical ailments even if the idea is like well he's so rich he can be arrogant and hire this guy to carry him around instead of using a wheelchair like huh like i don't really get the joke of that particularly and you know what show did that a lot better was 30 rock with prince gerhardt the uh paul rubens character as the the last remain surviving Habsburg. yes (laughs) agree that's the that's the right way to do that joke if there is the right way i mean you know yeah it's it's iffy either way, but I agree. That's that's a funnier version of it for sure. And so, yeah, the and the Jeffrey Tambor stuff, like it wasn't their t- fault at the time, I guess. <laughs> I mean, who's to say this was who's like to say? 15 years ago? The, at least this episode doesn't have any daddy horny <sighs> lines in it. Oh, so, yeah. You know, that, uh, but yes, uh, it, you know, leaving aside the fourth season, which like no one is going to say that's uh, it feels like such a different thing. And no one's going to say like that even is you know, no one's going to pick a good episode from that season either. Cause it's such a different, poorly constructed thing. Um, yeah. this is undoubtedly the worst episode of the original three seasons. So excellent choice and excellent choice, Sarah. Um, I had more of a problem with the clonkiness of the writing that Joe mentioned. I mean, first of all, excellent presentation. Um, like the, I mean, for every subtle thing with like the blue handprints or like just Tobias slipping and then from the floor being like, was your mother here? Just yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. that's really good. Um, the, but then you have like the, just over explaining, like, I think that means the jokes on Job, like that it's a little obvious this writing and I don't, yeah. I don't know why in scenes that Martin Short isn't even in, um, your point about Martin Short and Dave's point about him being the banana, olive, whatever, smoothie <laughs> ingredient. Um, you can really taste the short. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to the nuts um, <clears throat> is well taken. You're talking to someone who, while on the couch with a broken ankle, ordered not to get up for any reason took a nap, woke up during Clifford on HBO and fucking Marine crawled on her elbows to get to the remote to get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, it is a, it is an experience that haunts me to this day. So he is not always for everyone. Um, I get that, uh-huh. but I don't think this episode is that bad and it, it moves along. Like I absolutely see what you're saying. He's, he's off tone for the show. A lot of the stuff does is like, eh, but you have like a couple other, you know, you have a couple of other problematic actors 
in there that are problematic for other reasons. Like, I just, I don't know if I can nonak an episode that has Job's chicken dance, which if I could, <laughs> would I would get tattooed on my face. Yeah. It's so funny. Fair. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, just, but this isn't, this isn't the chicken dance episode either. Right. This There's is, one where, yeah. This is a right. doesn't matter. This isn't the one that... You know how I feel about chickens, <laughs> Dave Cole. <laughs> and I don't know. For me, this one is sort of like, there is a certain rhythm to an Arrested Development episode, and as soon as he introduced Martin Short's character, it derails. Like, that first seven, eight minutes, that's Arrested Development material. And then when he Uncle Jack comes in, it derails it, and not only when he's there, but when he's not there. Like, that whole chunk of the, the uh, romantic beach getaway, where they're just sort of, like, going into the wrong tent time after time. Benny Hill is around, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't it it doesn't have the same rhythm. It just feels like they stop writing Arrested Development one one third into the to the episode. To me. Yeah, that could be. But it's interesting that you don't feel that. Oh, uh, you do. No, okay. no. I mean, I I agree with you. I just don't think it's mm -hmm. enough worse. That's all. I see. Okay. Like you're right. Got it. I just don't. You know, it's a matter of degree. Yeah, you love yeah. Martin Short. <laughs> <laughs> the minute we are done with game time, I'm going to go to the nuts, smart and short. That's absolutely what's happening. <laughs> All right. This this is Sarah D. Bunting. Oh, this episode of Arrested Development is the best, I must say. That's you. <laughs> what the fuck? God. I'm John Wayne now? <laughs> Who even is that? All right. Uh, let's put this Aww. to a vote. Tara Arietta. <laughs> I vote uh, yay, no knack for sure. I'm going to say it is also definitely no-knack material. Sarah D. Bunting. You're, you're a no-knack episode, Dave Cole, but this is not. <laughs> okay. Doesn't matter. I know. Two votes to one. Uh, <laughs> Arrested Development, season two, episode 10. <laughs> Ready, aim, bury me. You are hereby inducted into the extra hot great note. Uh, welcome back, you terrible child musicians. It's apparently not. I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> Americans love a winner yeah. and will not tolerate a loser. Nope. It is time for a winner and a loser of the week. Tara has our winner. Well, first two things. One, you forget how high and screechy that actually gets. Honest two is that we've said this, I'm sure before, but just for the record, apparently this is not child musicians. It's a thing where p professional musicians were playing instruments. They don't actually. They traded oh. instruments. They're just doing. Yeah. Gotcha. Yes. Uh, winner briefly, um, Michelle Wolf. I mentioned her late last year as she, one of several, um, stand-up comedy specials that I'd recently watched. Hers is called nice lady and it's on HBO. She it's has so just good. been named. Yes. She's just been named the host of a new weekly talk show on Netflix, which is 
something they're really going hard after, which I wouldn't have thought based on how no one ever talks about Chelsea lately. But Mm -hmm. they've got the Letterman show and a Joel McHale show and now this. So good for her. Her appearance on Late Nights with Seth Meyers, which she used to write for. She's now on The Daily Show or was until recently. I guess won't be after this. But um, when she was promoting Nice Lady, the interview the two of them did was just so much fun to watch. Like just because they were obviously like very friendly and liked each other and were goofing around and it was great. So if that's the energy that she brings to the show, great. If that means she only introduce interviews her friends, I'm fine with it. Yep. And loser of the week. Uh, Omarosa. Not only is uh, <laughs> she a pathetic kiss ass collaborator, she doesn't even have the courage of those convictions. Now on celebrity big brother, she is telling her housemates she wouldn't vote for Trump again in a million years. Oh, word. Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) And saying that she thought Mike Pence Pence presidency would be worse because he thinks that he actually talks to Jesus and she doesn't because she is also a Christian question mark. Anyway, Joe, did you have anything to add about the season thus far since you've been watching it? I will say for as bad as Omarosa is and she is she the season as a whole is very interesting because it's literally like a two week sprint of a Big Brother season, which honest to God, this is how they should do it every year because (laughs) It's so much more interesting. So much more happens. There's not all that downtime where you end up like hating everybody. Um, I thought I was going to absolutely load this season. I'm actually really enjoying it. It's way too much of a commitment. Tara, it like obliterates your rule about watching more than one episode a week. It's on all the time. Sometimes with two hour episodes, it is offensive in that way. And Omaros is offensive in that way, too. But watching, for example, like Ross Matthews, just like the the clip that sort of went around made it sort of seem like and it was kind of that he was, you know, sort of like hanging on her every word, trying to get like the scoop. But then they would cut to interviews where he was like, I know it's Omarosa. I know she's lying like every other word, but he's like, it's still amazing that like, well, he's a student getting the scoop is what I've heard. He's He's great. I love him. I love him so much. Also, I think that Julie Chen hates Melissa, Marissa Jarrett Winokur from their time co-hosting the talk. That is just my theory. Let's see if it pans out. Yeah. I forgot about that. Awesome. Yeah. Speaking of things you forgot about, do you know what time it is? <laughs> Game time? Remember time? Game time. Welcome back to Game Time. This is the second Game Time of the season. Value guests have our only point so far. Today we are playing Novel Ideas from Dan Casino. (laughs) Who earns himself an extra credit redeemable for an extra hot great mini topic of his choosing? Dan writes, for the publishing industry, TV shows make for an unbeatable deal. Built-in audiences, recognizable brands, and, if you're lucky, cheesy photo covers. In this game, you'll be given a description of a novel based on a TV series, and your job is to name the show for two points. If you need a hint, you can get more information about the show and other novels it spawned, after which the answer is worth one point. Make sense? Yes. Yes. All right, steel mill situation, please, Tara. Steel Meals. Sarah has one. Valued guests have two. Ooh. I have zero. Okay. All right. Let's throw it to Picky to see who is going to go first. We will start with Sarah. All right. Our order today. Sarah, Tara, Joe, are we ready to play Novel Ideas? Yes. Yes, yes sir. 
Sarah, the title of your novel is Image. It was published in 2002. An old evil is trying to use a painting to achieve great power. And an immortal L.A. artist who once painted Darla and unintentionally inspired Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein is involved. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <clears throat> Incorrect. What? That was Angel. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, just so you know, uh, you only get to guess once. You don't get a free guess. So you can guess for two okay. points or you can ask for a hint for one point. To Tara. Yep. The Shooting Script, 2004. A doctor and his son investigate the brutal murder of an aspiring actress and a Hollywood producer, a crime that has rocked their Malibu community. When all clues point to the producer's wife, the case takes on a new twist involving the mafia. Oh my god. Um, hint. The description for this continuing series of novels based on a CBS series that ended in 2001 features the intensely sad sentence, original story based on the hit series now appearing on the PAX network. Oh, shit. Oh my god. Ugh. I know this isn't right, but all I can think of is Jag. Incorrect. That is Diagnosis Murder. <laughs> Amazing. All right, Joe, here's your first question. Fantasies, uh, 1992. The gang tries to reveal their fantasies during a day at the beach, leading one character to wonder if she plays a role in any other's fantasy future, while two of the girls consider breaking away from their pampered pasts. Uh, okay. I'm just going to go for it and guess. Is this Beverly Hills 90210? Nice. Can I, can I add a fun fact about this? Yeah. Because I might be shopping for someone's birthday spoiler alert. Um, I may have been looking to see uh, if there were any tie-in books of this sort for Beverly Hills 90210. Didn't I buy you some one time that had, like, the bubblegum packs? Or did I just get the bubblegum packs? No, no, no. You got me the Brenda book. But this is the only one of all the ones that are available to still buy. That is not just a straight retelling of an episode of the show, huh. which I don't know how they stretch those out even to be like 80 pages long. But anyway, good job, Joe. Correct. 16 novels, most of them expansions of TV episodes. God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two, two points for that? Two points, indeed. Good job. Joe. All right, back to Sarah. Summer and series name, 2011. Serving as a sequel to one TV series and a prequel to another, this novel takes place the summer before the main character's freshman year at Brown. She takes a writing class, pursues an older man, and makes friends with some terrible people. But it's cool because she's pretty awful herself. <laughs> uh, hint? The creator of this HBO series wrote two young adult books detailing the early life of her heroine, published in 2010 and 2011. Uh, sex in the City? Good for hey! one point. All right, Joe. Yes. No, Tara. That's right. Me. I wanted Joe to remind me that it was Tara's <laughs> turn. Deadly Heat 2014. Helped by a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, a top NYPD homicide detective pursues the elusive former CIA station chief who ordered the execution of her mother over a decade ago. Deadly Heat. Deadly Heat. 
seems like the obvious answer is too obvious, so I'm going to guess this is... What year was this? 2014. Is this CSI New York? Mm. Incorrect. 12 novels have been published based on this ABC series, continuing even after the series ended. Six of them are purported to be the books written by one of the characters in the show. That show is Castle. Oh. Sure. Yeah, Castle novels. All right, now it's Joe's turn. The Road, not the McCormack one, but The Road, 2010. (laughs) One of the main characters is being threatened by supernatural forces that want her to finally pass through to the other side, while another ghost takes up residence in the flat she shares with two other supernaturally tinged characters. Damn, this is so much more than I thought this show was about. I think this is the Ghost Whisperer? Oh, no! There's a clue there. Residence in the flat, she shares. Oh, with two. yeah. That is being human. Being human. Being human. Yeah. Okay, back to Sarah, the grassy knoll. After the murder of talk show host Paul Drury, the title cop character must unravel the 30-year-old mystery of the assassination of President Kennedy. Is that all he has to do? Okay. Oh. Hint. Okay. Surprisingly... Only about a dozen mystery novels were written based on this popular NBC series that moved to ABC for a series of TV movies later in its long, long run. Heart to heart? Mm. I guess. Steel Meal? Steel Meal. Is it Kojak? Mm. Ah, you wasted a Steel Meal, you dummy. That is Columbo. Oh. Oh. Okay. Tara, mm-hmm. harm for the holidays, colon, misgivings. <laughs> 2011, an annual gathering of Santa Clauses mm-hmm. goes awry when one of the St. Nicks is found decapitated with his hands cut off in a case that reveals ties to an international kidnapping ring. My God. Jesus, that's real dark <laughs> for such a goofy title. Um... What year again? Sorry. Uh, this novel was published in 2011. Okay. Um, is this The Mentalist? No. Oh, you should have asked for a hint. Would have given it away. Starting yeah. in 2003, Pocket Book put out eight novels based on this Florida-based CBS procedural. Oh. CSI Miami. Hmm? Is it CSI Miami? Is it? I know. Yeah. <laughs> Double Dealing, 1986. One of the younger members of the cast falls for an up-and-coming country music singer. However, the singer's attentions quickly shift when the family patriarch offers to finance her music career and the younger man becomes violently jealous. (laughs) Double Dealing, 86. And please... Starting in 1980, Dell Publishing put out annual books based on the CBS series, with each of the four novels adapting the storylines of a season's worth of episodes. Another 14 books came out in 86 and 87, but stopped well before the show itself was canceled in 91. A lot of information there. Yeah. Is it Knott's Landing? Oh! Is it Dallas? Yeah, it's Dallas. Fuck. Okay. Next one, Bad Bargain 2006. Items for the school rummage sale become infected with demonic parasites 
after being stored in the school basement. <laughs> Bite a nickel. Uh, 2006? Correct. Just all right. Guess or yeah, I'm gonna guess. This is but this has to be Buffy. Indeed, hey! it has. Nice. guess how many novels were based on Buffy and published? Oh, like twenty-two. I, I was it was say, also yeah. a comic book. Over eighty. <gasps> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Strangers at Colin's house, nineteen sixty-nine. Victoria has a clue to her own identity when she meets an elderly man who secretly gives her the jewels which once belonged to his lost love. A woman Victoria strongly resembles. Okay, first of all, Dan Casino, how old do you think I am? Second hint. <laughs> 32 books based on the supernatural ABC soap came out during his five-year run. Holy cow. Uh, which began in 1966 with another few coming out during an aborted 90s revival. Is this Dark Shadows? Yay! Get I'm on the board! Character name redacted on ice, 1987. <laughs> directly from the back of the book. Here we go. In the Alaskan wastelands, a crazy general has developed a bacterial time bomb, which threatens to wipe out the neighboring Russian population. Only one man can break through his ingenious security defenses and abort his deadly plan. The fast thinking loner who combines a brilliant mind with formidable physical strength. Physical strength. Yeah. Huh? Directly from the back of the book. I, I had it, and now I'm less sure. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask for a hint. Okay. Only a few men's adventure novels were marketed for this ABC series, which originally ran from 85 to 92, and there haven't been any novels based on the 2016 revival. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, it's what I thought. Uh, MacGyver. Say it correctly. MacGyver! <laughs> MacGyver. <laughs> I was thinking Incredible Hulk. I was way off. I was thinking Knight Rider. Okay, this is Crossroads from 2017. During the Mardi Gras parade, a young oceanographer plunges to his death from a hotel balcony. But the case goes from grisly to utterly strange with a grigri bag found in the victim's belongings, a trail of mystical clues, and the haunting figure of a voodoo loa on the CCTV at the crime scene. Uh, NCIS New Orleans. Ding, ding. Two points. Nice. Oh, this is a great title. Trust Doesn't Rust. 1984. <laughs> Sorry, eight, what year? Uh, 1984. Okay. Two petty thieves break into a warehouse and unwittingly reactivate a malicious artificial intelligent vehicle that they use for bank heists. <laughs> Is this Knight Rider? Car! Yeah. Gotta be Knight Rider. <laughs> K-A-R-R, -R, in effect. Mm -hmm. Sam Hahn, 2003. During Halloween, one of the sisters tries to communicate with her ancestors, but is interrupted when she is tasked with reuniting a pair of star-crossed lovers. Is this Charmed? Indeed it is. 55 novels Run. based on Ooh. Charm out there. Wow. Blue Bud, Blue, Blue Blood, Blue. 1997. When a pair of armed intruders bursts into his apartment, the main character concludes they are out to get him and that he has to put his new wife in danger. But everyone involved in the case believes that his wife could easily just have been the target. Uh, hint. 
Noted novelist Max Allen Collins wrote a short series of novels based on this long-running 1993 ABC series. NYPD Blue. Good for one point. Number 17. Spread Eagle. Spread Eagle. Series title goes on, 1999. Series title goes on, 1999. Uh Our heroine is back with the object of her affections, sort of, and working at her dad's restaurant while Brian and Ricky find love of their own and someone gets hired and fired from a series of jobs. This is My So-Called Life. My So-Called Life goes on, 1999. Correct. Queen of the May. Also in the 90s, 1996, when the town doctor gets overly busy with seasonal flu cases, Colleen decides to keep her school problems to herself, a situation that teaches her a lesson in communication when things spiral out of control. Hint. There are at least five novels based on this 93 to 98 CBS series about a doctor who leaves Boston to seek adventure in the wild west town of Colorado Springs. This is sort of what I thought, too. Uh, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman? Good for a point. The Calling, 2011. Anne, and this is in quotes, obsessive, instinctive, and intense, DCI chases a child killer named Henry Madsen in the case that tears apart his personal and professional relationships. Uh, uh, prime suspect? Luther. <laughs> Nashville Noir. Mm-hmm. Nashville Noir, 2010. Weeks after a young singer is sent from Maine to Nashville on scholarship, everyone <laughs> is stunned when she's charged with the murder of a brash music publisher. On the basis of Maine, <laughs> I'm going to guess this is Murder, She Wrote. All right. Not even going to wait for the rest of the... Description, Murder, oh, She Wrote, is correct. There was more. The Zodiac Paradox, 2013. Two Boston scientists discover a drug, Cortexafan, that allows <laughs> them to access an alternative universe. This is Fringe. This is Fringe. Two points. Yeah. Three novels based on Fringe out there. <laughs> Series title in outer space, 2007. Who's this for? Sarah. Sarah. Of course it is. You know why? Space! <laughs> space. Series title in Outer Space 2007, when the creator of a popular science fiction TV series is gunned down outside of a convention, the two main characters are called in. The series lead soon finds that there is more going on behind the scenes and that his big brother Ambrose is a big expert on the show. Uh, Ambrose? This is Monk. Indeed it is. 19 (laughs) Monk novels. Uh, the Chopping Block, 2014. Okay. A cache of bones is found in a shallow grave in local woods. Meanwhile, missing person cases in Portland seem to be on the increase. As more bones are discovered, a homicide detective and his partner investigate, but there seems to be no connection between the victims. Uh, I don't know what shows happen in Portland. Hint. A three novel series based on this recent NBC Supernatural show came out in 2014 and 2015. Grim? Grim for one point. Force Majeure, 1998. The main character, a consultant working for a shadowy group, investigates a pair of suicides connected to a cult 
which has been experimenting with human cloning. Is this the X Files? Mm. Oh, you're oh gonna no! Hate, you're gonna hate the answer, Joe. No, it's Millennium. Oh. <laughs> Guess what? We're all tied. Holy up. shit! All right, yeah. let's get back yep. into the game then. Plague Room 2008. When a dry cleaners acquires a poltergeist, the owners bring in a spiritual consultant who guarantees success in moving spirits to the afterlife for a fee. But her methodology involves trapping and forcing spirits into the light, and she pays no heed when the main character tells her what she's doing is wrong and dangerous. I love that they say they acquired a poltergeist like they got it in <laughs> <Yeah>. a flea market. <laughs> Uh, what's the year Playgroom again? Playgroom 2008. 2008. 2008. Medium? Mm. Oh, that's such a good guess. Three novels based on the CBS show about an antique owner with supernatural powers oh, that yeah. ran from 05 to 10. That's the yeah, Ghost Whisperer. That's, that's my other choice. Uh, oh, well. Hidden series name. Mm. 2001. A New York Times bestseller, which purports to be the diary of the town witch, Tabitha Lennox. It delves into the backstories of several of the characters, most notably how Eve and Julian fell in love. Oh, my God. The hell show had a Julian. Hint. <laughs> the NBC soap that inspired this novel ran from 99 to 07, making it the last daytime soap created for American television. Oh. Passions? Yep. Hidden Passions. Okay. 2001. Rebirth, 2013. Having escaped from the center, and the center is capitalized, <laughs> the hero impersonates a doctor in order to gain access to a secret wing of a hospital where a patient will help him solve the mystery of what happened to a missing boy. And please. The creators of the series, which ran on NBC from 1996 to 2000, holy cow, this novel came out 13, 13 years, years after later. Against, Jesus. Ran from uh, 96 to 2000, then in TV movies on TNT in 2001 and 2002, effectively rebooted the series with these novels. Shoof. I have no idea. Um... I'm, uh, 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 oh, wait, um, The Pretender? Oh, oh nice. Hey. <laughs> nice pull. Wow. Very well done. Okay, Snow Falling 2017. Well, the TV series is set in the modern day. This novel is set in 1902 Miami, a time of railroad tycoons, hotel booms, and exciting expansion for the Magic City. Working at the lavish Regal Soul Hotel and newly engaged to Pinkerton detective Martin Caden, Josephine Galena Valencia has big dreams. Don't laugh at me. Big dreams for her for, for her future. Uh, I was once like you. <laughs> how, how many questions do we each have left? Two or three. Okay. So I need to start guessing big here. Uh, the series is set in the present day. Ugh. Mm -hmm. um, the novels. But this is 1902 Miami. Doesn't help. 
Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Vampire Diaries. Why not? Do you want the hint? Uh, no. I'm guessing Vampire Diaries. All right. <laughs> that is Jane the Virgin. Jane the Virgin. Saving Charlie 2007. A man with the ability to travel through time transports himself back six months in order to save the life of a super-powered waitress who was originally killed by a super-powered serial killer. Mm, Hint. There were ambitious plans for novels and comic books based on this hit NBC series that ran yeah. from 06 to 2010. But as soon as I said hint, like I the show it. itself, yeah. they crashed and burned after later seasons failed to live up to the success of the first round of episodes. Heroes. Correct. On Fire 2012. A mountain lion. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. A mountain lion is played for. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. A mountain lion is blamed for a series of vicious attacks in Beacon Hills, but the true cause is not that simple. However, our main character has more to worry about as he needs to hide his alternative identity, fight his need to shift, and keep the murderous Alpha off his back. This is Teen Wolf. This is Teen Wolf. Nice. <laughs> I don't know why nice. I found the mountain lion thing so funny, but I did. <laughs> Everybody has... Three questions left by the looks huh. of it or so. Okay. How the quest was won. 2000. Fleeing her abusive husband, Menelaus. Menelaus. Uh-huh. Nothing? Uh-huh. Okay. Tom Bergeron. Um, Agamemnon. Uh-huh. Fleeing her abusive <laughs> husband, Menelaus, Helen has fled to the Isle of Crete, where she remains hidden. Until the wily king locates her and she seeks the protection of our heroines. 2000? Yeah. But remember that other show that had books into like well, 13 yeah, years that's, later. Yeah. Of our heroines. Hmm. Uh, hint. All right. A number of novels and even a larger number of comics, some written by Josh Whedon, detail the further adventures of the heroine from the syndicated series that ran from 95 to 2001. Probably Joss Whedon. What'd I say, Josh? Yeah, I like yeah. to say Josh yeah. instead of Joss. Jess, okay. Is this Xena, uh, Warrior Princess? Is it? Yay! It Yay! Nice. <laughs> Song of Orpheus, 1990. Father ventures into the world above, that's in quotations, for the first time in decades and is arrested for murder. To free him, the main characters must dive into Father's past, where they learn of his true identity as Dr. Jacob Wells, his blacklisting during the McCarthy era, and of his long-lost wife. If this is what I think it is, shout out to my mom, because this was her favorite show, Beauty and the Beast. Ah! <laughs> nice. You know Carol loved Beauty and the Beast. Of course she did. Shadows, 2003. A mysterious death near an abandoned missile silo starts a search for a new case of meteor mutation. But her hero <laughs> doesn't know that underground, a scientist meteor experiments are turning humans into murderous monsters. Okay. I think I know what it is. Mm. Will Joe Which swing for the fences? Chance. 
Do you need to know the scores? Meteor seems what like can it's... I do for you? I'm down one. Um, I'm going to guess. I'm going to say Smallville. Nice. Right. Yes. I would have guessed Roswell. That's why I never win. <laughs> All right. Everybody's got two questions left. Moment of Truth, 1987. Ginger's baby shower in Seaview Circle ends in terror when robbers take the party guests hostage, putting Kenny, Karen, and Laura at risk. Not Kenny. <laughs> Not Kenny. <laughs> oh, it's always something with Karen. Can I have a hint, please? Yes. This Dallas spinoff that ran on CBS from 79 to uh -huh. 93 spawned 12 novels, all of which were adaptations of pivotal episodes. I don't spinoff of Dallas. Spinoff of Dallas. Is. Ran for a billion years. The. Bowlby's? I don't remember. That's Dallas. That's Dynasty, isn't it? Uh, this is Knott's Landing. Oh, again. Landing. No Good Deed, 2001. When a desperate father kidnaps Michael to force him to use his healing powers to save the man's dying daughter, Max, Tess, Liz, Isabel, and Valenti set out to rescue Michael. But a nosy reporter could destroy everything. This is Ross. This is Ross. <gasps> yeah. Age of Aquariums, 1999. Assigned to clean the school's new aquarium. Okay. Our heroine transforms herself into a tiny mermaid and uncovers the lost city of Atlantis, which is populated by a tiny race of mer people and somehow exists inside the fish tank. Okay. Um... I'm going to guess again. Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Joe nice. swings with the fences again and gets it. All right. Everybody's last question. Here you go. The Shadow Within, 2002. The dedication of the titular space station is fast approaching, and desperate enemies intend to see it end in catastrophe. The fate of the fledgling space alliance lies in the hands of John Sheridan, newly appointed captain Wow, of the spaceship Agamemnon. <laughs> uh, hint. 21 novels based on the syndicated sci-fi series that ran from 93 to 98 were released, but only 11 of them are considered canonical by the show's fans. <laughs> they sound fun. Yeah, they do. They do. Is it? Oh, no, that's not right. Deep Space Nine? Oh, the other one. Babylon 5. Oh. What's the scores? Well, Sarah had nine. Um, I have 14 and Joe has 15. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. A Generation of Vipers 2017. Wait. Uh, oh, sorry. 2017. A Generation of Vipers. I am listening. Continuing a crossover from a novel based on another series, a superhero travels from city to city where he must tackle an army of mercenaries in order to resolve the mystery of the bizarre energy that threatens to kill one of them. Oh, God, it could be any of them. <laughs> God. Well, you can ask for a hint oh. and hope Joe does. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. No, I'm going to guess. 
Wait, read it again. <laughs> a Generation of Vipers 2017, continuing a crossover from a novel based on another series. A superhero travels from city to city, from, from one city mm-hmm. to another city, where he must Got tackle it. an army of mercenaries in yeah. order to resolve the mystery of the bizarre energy that threatens to kill one of them. We got a crossover. We got two cities. We yeah. got apparently a couple of heroes here. Army mercenaries yeah. and a bizarre energy mm-hmm. that threatens to kill one of them. Yeah. We got all those things. Yeah. Fuck. <sighs> we'll take a hint. So far, there have been three novels based on the first of the now linked CW superhero shows. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I got, I knew that. Okay. The Flash? No, that's not the first. Mm. Arrow. Arrow. Arrow was Fucking the first. Arrow. All right, Joe. Too close for comfort. Congratulations, Joe. Too close for comfort. Nineteen ninety, when main character leaps into the middle of a men's encounter group. Circa nineteen ninety, he meets Al, not the holographic Al from the near future, but a younger, soul-searching Al, beating his naked chest in a mock tribal quest for his primitive nature. That's from the back of the book. <laughs> I never watched the show, and it always sounds fucking insane anytime anybody describes an episode. <laughs> Uh, Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap for two points. Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. Let's get the little scores, please. Make it official. Scores, please. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Had... Nine points for Sarah. 14 for me. <laughs> Joe wins with 17. All right. Congratulations. <laughs> Joe. Yay. All right, guys, that is it for another episode of Extra. Ah, great. We set our alarms for 11.11 to discuss HBO's numerical mystery show, Here and Again? Again and Here? Here and (laughs) and Now. Before going around the dial with stops at Queer Eye, American Crime Story, and Homeland. We asked, will Dave hate three upcoming shows, Magnum P.I., Hana, and The Caesars, and continue the hate train for the no-knack-worthy Arrested Development episode ready aim marry me we crown losers and winners of the week (laughs) not in that order and joe was the winner of this week's game time playing for valuable guests so now we're up two points remember we're listening (laughs) thanks for listening everybody i am david t cole on behalf of tari ariana shoot me sarah debunting these aren't even birds and Joe Reed. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time right here on Extra Hot Yeah? Hey, buddy. Who's that gangy? was just... You all right? Oh. Sorry. Your grandmother had a little accident here. Oh. Does that mean she's going to have to come live with us? No, 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 it was, it was her drink. And even if it wasn't, just... <laughs> this has been a production of the Previously.TV Podcast Network.